Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you guys again. I think October 1st was the last time that we were here. And we had been in Joshua 5 the last time, and looking at Israel crossing over the Jordan as they prepared to begin their conquest of the Promised Land. And today we'll pick up in chapter 6. And for context, let me just read the verses from the previous chapter, verses 13 through 15. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And this is where the commander of Yahweh's army appeared to Joshua. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, of Yahweh's army, and we talked about it last time in October, that this is most likely a pre-incarnate vision or appearance of Christ, because he says the ground is holy, Joshua worships, It's not just an angel. But he is here to lead them into battle, which then leads us to an uncomfortable position with this passage. You know, there are some passages in Scripture that at times are difficult. We read them and we think, wow, that's kind of uncomfortable, you know? And this is one of those passages. If you stop and you think about we're about to hear the, the tale of a large city, one of the best protected cities, and that city is going to collapse. It is going to be conquered and not taken captive, but completely destroyed. That includes all the men, women, and children within the city. And that can be uncomfortable. We read that and we go, ooh, that seems a little harsh. And so we wonder, you know, did God change? Is he different today than he was then? You know, and sometimes it feels or we think or people will tell us that the God of the Old Testament was this God of wrath and, you know, anger. But now we're in the New Testament. And so, for us to read these old passages, what are we to gain from these? I went and looked at a bunch of the the sermon titles, full disclosure. That's the hardest part of sermon preparation for me, is coming up with a sermon title. And so, as I sit down to to figure out what am I going to call this thing, 
I, I went and looked. What are some of the other sermon titles that people used for this passage? Here's what I found. It said, the power of a shout. The sermon went on to, to tell you how you could shout at God for what you wanted, and he would hear you if you shouted at him. Another one was conquer the new year. Like Israel had conquered Jericho, you can conquer the new year. In everyone's life, there comes a Jericho. How to overcome obstacles? How to make your walls fall down flat? Or maybe my personal favorite, becoming a circle maker, praying with excellence. And I read Joshua 6, and I say, is God trying to teach us how to pray to him? Is he teaching us how to overcome the obstacles? I mean, if he's trying to teach us to overcome the obstacles, the next time I run into a difficult problem at work, everybody is going to look at me oddly when I start marching around the problem and shouting, don't worry, we just need a few more days of this and we'll be good. No. Joshua 6 is not God trying to instruct Israel uh, of here's how to overcome your problems. It's not a lesson for the church how to talk to God, how to pray to God, how to conquer the sin or the, the problems or the issues in your life. So then what was it? Because the lesson to Israel is the same lesson to us. It's not a secret message. I don't have to force it. Whatever God was trying to teach Israel translates to us. And it's not to manipulate God with a shout or a prayer or a way to overcome sin and obstacles in your life. Rather, this is God working with his covenant community with his people that he's chosen, and he's revealing himself to them. He's revealing himself to the people of the land, and he's establishing himself and his reputation with both Israel and the Gentile nations. So let me go ahead and jump into our story, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6. And as we read through verses 1 through 11, I want you to pay attention. Think about who is the moving agent. Who is the one that is making things happen in this passage? Is Israel really, truly going to conquer Jericho? Let's see. Jer Joshua 6.1 says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. And so it starts out, and it seems to be that Jericho, they've closed their gates, shut the windows, put the guard out, don't let anybody in or out, Israel's arrived at our doorstep. And so it seems right at the start that, oh, 
Jericho is worried about Israel. Jericho is worried about this nation. Israel is going to conquer Jericho. But then verse 2 disabuses us of any thought like that. And it says, And Yahweh said to Joshua, See? You see this city in front of you? I have given Jericho into your hand. Now Joshua is sitting there. Jericho is not conquered at this point, is it? The walls are still up. The doors are shut. The guard is set. It's not conquered. Or is it? Verse 3, he says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. See, I can imagine, Joshua, you've come across the river. You're getting ready to invade the land. Here's your first battle, Jericho. And you're wondering, all right, how are we going to destroy this city? What's God going to do? Drop some boulders on it from the sky, fire, earthquake. What are we going to get? And the commander lays out this plan. And here is the strategy. All right, Joshua, you and the people are going to walk around the city. That is the battle plan for you. Walk around the city. Verse 4 says, Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of Yahweh. So you can start to see, as you read through the passage, what comes to the forefront? Is it Israel, the priests, the trumpets, the armed men? As we read through verses 1 through 11, there's one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again, and it is the ark of Yahweh, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant. All the names for the same thing, different names for the same thing. Ten times in these 11 verses, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. And this Ark of Yahweh, this Ark of the Covenant, is what is the focus. The armed men are going to walk in front of it. It's going to lead the procession. It's similar to when they crossed over the Jordan. When they crossed over the Jordan, the Ark led them through. And it's going to lead them into this battle. Now, we should know it's not just a box that's leading them into battle. It's what the box represented. It's what presence that that box contained. That Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God for Israel. It's where his presence resided and ultimately would reside 
within the temple. It's where they would approach God to interact with Him. This ark is the central focus of this battle, if you could call it, of Jericho. I almost want to call this the parade of Jericho, not the battle of Jericho. God is the one that is capturing Jericho for them. He's going to conquer this city and turn it over to Israel to finish off for destruction. But it's not Israel that's doing this. And Yahweh wanted to set that in Israel's mind right at the very beginning. Israel, you need to understand. If you're going to go conquer this land, but don't misunderstand. You have not done it. I'm the one that brought victory for you. He continues in verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh went forward blowing the trumpets with the ark of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard and neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And so right at the beginning, we see Yahweh setting himself up as independent. I am doing this, Israel. This is not you. If it was not for me, if I was not your commander, if I was not your God, you would not find victory here at Jericho. So why? So he establishes his authority, his independence, his providence, that this is my battle that you're along for. But why? What's he trying to instill within the people of Israel? Verses 12 through 16, I think we see really the core of what God is trying to teach Israel. And that is he's trying to instill in them a faith. Verses 12 through 16 says, Joshua rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of Yahweh and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. And so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you this city. Jericho was not a normative event. We don't have 
every time Israel gets to a, a city, they start to walk around it for seven days. This is not the normal way that God would work out a battle. So then this is not a normative way for us to deal with our problems. They're not trying to instruct you, march around your problems, shout to God, uh, even metaphorically march around your problems. It's not God's instruction here. Rather, God is trying to instill a faith in his people. Think about this. What was it that God asked them to do? Was he asking them to march around the city? I mean, is that the only intention? His intention is, I want you to walk around this city. I want you to spend six days walking around the most fortified, heavily armed city in the country. And then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. And then you're going to see what I'm going to do for you. He wants to instill in them a faith. I mean, he promised, I'm going to give you this land. That was part of the covenant to Abram. It's part of the covenant that was reiterated at Sinai when they came out of Egypt. God rescues them. We know the story of all the plagues leading up to Passover. Finally, they leave Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. God uses the sea to wipe out Pharaoh's army. They get to the land. And what happens? Their faith falters. They send spies into the land. The spies come back and they say, there's no way we can do this. There is absolutely no way, people, we're going to be able to conquer this land. People are too big, too armed. We don't have enough strategy, ability, people, whatever. They were right. They were absolutely right. There was no way that Israel was going to enter into the promised land and conquer that land by themselves. If they had faith in God, they would have had no issue. But their faith falters, and they don't follow the instructions that God had given them. And so then God says, fine. Your lack of faith means you're not going to enter the promised land. And they wander for 40 years. And that generation dies off. And now here they are, back on the footsteps on the shore of the promised land. How is it going to turn out this time? And God wants to instill in them right away. Don't make the mistake you made last time. I am not asking you to enter this land and conquer these people by yourselves. I am going to hold your hand and guide you through this process. I'm going to instill in you a faith that trusts in me. And we face similar debates today. When we're faced with some sort of a trial or some sort of a, a sin that's tempting us, it's not a, how are we going to deal with the sin? Or Rather, it is, how strong is your faith with God. Because when you're faced with temptation to sin, the argument isn't, oh, do I want to do this or not do it? Am I going to do this or not? But rather, God says, I'm not to do this, but I really want it. But God says not to do it. So I'm going to trust in God's plan, 
Am I going to trust that God knows what's best for me and that I shouldn't do this? Am I going to have faith in his promises or am I going to have faith in whatever this sin is? And so often, like Israel, we succumb to a lack of faith. We have faith in ourselves, our government, our wife, our husband, our children, or whatever it is, rather than placing our faith in Yahweh, in God, and in Christ. Israel was not going to make that same mistake again. Verses 17 through the end of the chapter. This is in the city. And all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. This is a difficult statement. This is hard when you think about it. He's not saying all the couches and beds and doors and carts and all that stuff's devoted for destruction. No. Everything in the city is devoted for destruction. All the people? All the people. What about the kids? Yes, the kids. And we go, man, ooh, this is uncomfortable. But understand, this passage is really a shining example of the salvation and the redemption that God offers. And salvation and redemption don't come without judgment, without wrath, without punishment, what are we redeemed from? We're redeemed, we are saved from facing judgment and punishment for the sins that we've done, for rebelling against God, not following his will. We're placed in a position of requiring judgment. But we have been given redemption, salvation, to escape that judgment. And we say, yeah, but you know, people in the land, they were just devoted for destruction. They didn't have that opportunity. As we continue reading verse 7, only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messenger whom we sent. Because she hid the messenger whom we sent. Because she had faith in a God called Yahweh that she had heard about. So she hid the spies. She had heard about Israel and about Yahweh and what he had done for them. And she puts herself at his mercy and she finds redemption. She finds salvation from the destruction of Jericho. How did the rest of the city respond? They shut up the doors, shut the wall, closed the windows, put the guard up, and they rejected Yahweh so they would face judgment. You see, our problem is we parachute into Joshua, right? We jump into Joshua and we start reading. We go, wow, this is terrible, man. Like he's destroying cities and people and just wiping stuff off the, the face of the earth. This is rough. 
But Genesis 15, 16, hundreds of years earlier, Yahweh promises Abram, I'm going to give you the promised land. But not right now. Not yet. I'm not going to give it to you yet. Why? Because the iniquity, because the sin, the rebellion of the people in the land there is not yet complete. You see, one of the characteristics, one of the traits of God is the idea of patience, that he is a patient God. The Hebrew word is long-suffering, that he is long-suffering, that he is willing to bide his time and be patient until he is ready to act. And here he tells Abram, I'm not going to give you the promised land yet because I'm not done with the people in the land. I need to give them an opportunity to fulfill or complete their rebellion and sinfulness. You see, Yahweh cast out the residents of the promised land, including Jericho. And it wasn't because he needed a place for his people to stay. But he says this, Leviticus 18, 24 through 25, says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these nations, the nations in the promised land, I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. You see, God says, I'm going to give you this land, but Abram, I'm going to wait, not for 40 years, not for 100 years, for 400 years. Now think about this. Let's say you get put, you go to work, and you have something you need to improve. And so they put you on a performance improvement plan. And we're going to give you, here's your performance improvement plan. And, and the date that they want to come back and reevaluate your performance is in 400 years. You have 400 years to get it right, to get it figured out. Is that fair? That's probably more than fair. 400 years? I'm not even going to live that long. The people in the promised land had 400 years to behave the way that Rahab did, to behave the way that Ruth would. But they don't. They reject Yahweh. When they're faced with His very presence, with His people around their city, they still don't repent. They still don't beg for mercy. You see, God wasn't bringing judgment to an innocent people. God wasn't bringing judgment to some people that had no idea what was going on. You see, the people in the promised land had rebelled against God for well over 400 years. They had made a perfection out of their perversions and their sinfulness and what they would do, and they reveled in it. It wasn't just small sins, if there is such a thing. But they were sins that we would say, hmm, somebody needs to punish them. And so this is God 
being patient for 400 years before he brings his judgment to them. The conquest is not just a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out a bunch of innocent people. The biblical view is that God uses unrighteous people as instruments to bring his judgment on a people who had celebrated their rebellion of him. You see, Israel wasn't chosen because of how righteous they were or because how good they were or how smart they were, but simply because it was God's choice. He tells them this in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5. He says, I'm driving them out because of the wickedness of these nations, not because of your righteousness. This is my judgment against them. So when you read this, God's judgment is uncomfortable. I mean, sit in that. God's judgment is not meant to be pleasing and comforting. And No, it is like a wicked hailstorm that just tears your house and car apart. God's wrath is unavoidable for those that deserve it. And so we sit in that uncomfortableness, but we have faith that God knows what he's doing, that God knows people's hearts, that God knows what his plan is, that none of this is out of his control. He started this back with Abram. And he said, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram, I'm going to give you offspring that is more numerous than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bring blessing not just to you, Israel, not just to you, Abram, but also to the entire world. And here we see these first hints of the redemption promised in that Abrahamic covenant. Here he is. He's bringing judgment on the pagan Gentiles. But it's a judgment that's long-suffering, patient, and full of grace. So full of grace that a prostitute named Rahab, who's only heard about Yahweh, is able to put herself at the mercy of Yahweh and find redemption to avoid being devoted for destruction. The New Testament authors read this passage and came to a very similar conclusion in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start with, um, let me go to verse 23. 
No, I'm sorry. Let's step back further. Let's go to 17. Verse 17. Just read like the whole chapter. Go to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs. We jump down to 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger of the king, uh, the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. And then verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. You see, the New Testament authors looked back and they understood God was instilling a faith in these people. It was their faith that God was working on. Their faith that was made apparent by them just listening to what God told them to do and following his will. In verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And this is so typical of how, you know, especially Jewish authors would write. This idea that, oh, she was saved and didn't perish because she had housed the spies, given them a welcome. No, because she knew Yahweh. She trusted Yahweh. She knew these were his people. She hid them because her faith in Yahweh was stronger than her faith in anything else that existed. So, your application then for today is how is God working to build your faith? You know, often we wonder, man, why do I face these trials? And we'll come up with, oh, to, help other people out, or he is always growing your faith. I mean, read Hebrews, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Because your faith is what's going to carry you as you go through life, as you face temptations, as you face sin, as you struggle. It's your faith, like the faith that Rahab had, that will allow you to say, yeah, I reject all earthly wisdom, and all the comforts. And I'm going to have faith that this God, Yahweh, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our redemption is going to keep his promises, that he is faithful. I'm going to trust in him. Let me close in prayer. Dear Lord, 
we come to you and we are so grateful for your patience. We're grateful for your patience and while we were still rebelling against you, while we were sinful, while we were an enemy of yours, that you were patient enough to wait, to bring your gospel to us, and to bring us the salvation that we so desperately needed, even if we didn't know it. And I pray that you would continue to build that faith, that as we interact with people, as we have opportunities to share your gospel, to follow your will, to listen to your instructions, that you would help us to not fall to the desires of our flesh or the wisdom that the world gives us, but that we would see stories like Jericho and Israel and Joshua and know that you are faithful. You are somebody that we can place our faith in, that we can have a complete trust that you've offered a plan for redemption through your son to remove our sins. And we place our faith in him that he's able to do that, that you are willing to do that, that you've already accomplished it, that we're already citizens of your kingdom, looking forward to spending eternity with you. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen this church, that you would use them in a powerful way to change this community, to change people's hearts. In Christ's name.